Chapter 23, Fanning Island, Part 1. Silhoué Mamosé, Ova Nanaye. Silhoué Mamosé, Ova Nanaye. Silhoué Mamosé. When Robert and I first met with our mission president, President Hawkins, in January of 2005, we were instructed by him to at some point travel to Fanning Island to determine if there were enough saints there to form a branch. Fanning Island sits about 160 miles northwest of Christmas Island. It is a small island, less than half the size of Christmas, and the only way to get there is by boat. It took us several months to get settled into life on Christmas Island, and feel comfortable enough with the culture and the environment prior to attempting a trip to Fanning Island. During that time, we talked to everyone we could who knew or seemed to know anything about Fanning. We didn't learn much, but from what we did learn, I became increasingly uncomfortable about taking Robin to such a backward place, at least until I had the opportunity to check it out first. We learned that there would be problems with accommodations, drinking water, medical help, and outside communications, among other things. As we talked this over and considered all the unknowns, we decided that it would be best if I made the first trip without her. However, I didn't feel comfortable traveling alone, so I asked our elders quorum president on Christmas Island, Simi Kaitawa, if he would be willing to accompany me. He agreed to do so. That was in June of 2005, about six months after we had arrived on Christmas. For the next four months, we tried in vain to coordinate our travel plans with that of one of the cargo ships heading to Fanning, all to no avail. By the beginning of October, I was starting to get desperate, and then just by happen chance, I heard of a fishing boat that was going to do a round trip from Christmas Island to Fanning Island and then to Washington Island then back to Fanning and Christmas. The whole round trip was to last just a little over a week, which would mean if I could get on that boat, I could have as much as four or five days in Fanning before coming home to Christmas Island, which would be, hopefully, long enough to make the evaluation requested by our mission president. I learned about the fishing boat on a Saturday morning and found out that the boat was leaving at 10 p.m. that night. I talked to Simi to make sure he could go on such short notice. Then I made arrangements with the captain of the boat. The rest of the evening I spent packing and trying to make sure I had everything I needed. At about 9 o'clock, we went to the jetty to board the boat, but were turned back because the captain hadn't arrived yet. At 11 o'clock that night, we went back to the jetty and were informed that the boat would be leaving at 5 the next morning. At 4 in the morning, we arrived, boarded the boat, and stored our luggage in the hold. Still no captain. At 6 o'clock, 
Just as the sun was rising, we were informed that they needed to pump fresh water onto the boat and that the boat would leave for shore at 10. When we showed up at 10, we were given the new time of 4 in the afternoon. We finally boarded the boat on our fifth try and left at 6 o'clock in the evening, an hour before sunset on Sunday. I mention this because this is so typical of a Kitabas schedule, which of course is non-existent. I was worried about getting seasick, so Saturday night I took two Dramamine tablets about an hour before the scheduled departure time, as per the directions on the bottle. When we finally left 24 hours later, the effect of the pills had worn off, and my suitcase with the Dramamine pills was buried in the bottom of the hold. Luckily, before I left, Robin prayed that I would be okay on the trip to Fanning, and that I would not get sick. Her prayer was answered, and I made it all the way there without a problem. I only wish she had included the return trip in her prayer. I'd like to give you an image of the decrepit old fishing boat we traveled on and its motley crew. The boat was an old catamaran. A catamaran has two separate hulls that are connected together by a common deck. It was about 15 feet wide by 40 feet long and had a top speed of 6 miles per hour, although I don't think we ever went that fast. It was loaded with barrels of oil and the belongings of about 20 people. It sort of looked like one of those refugee boats with stuff shoved everywhere, even on the roof of the cabin. There were no life jackets on the boat, but we did pull a small rowboat behind us that I suppose was meant to be our lifeboat. Although it almost sank on the way home. I'll tell you more about that later. The captain wore black cut-off shorts and a black t-shirt with the sleeves torn off. He sported dark sunglasses, two gold earrings, his head was shaved and he walked with a limp. Shades of Moby Dick. I imagined his limp was caused by a killer whale or a shark. The rest of the crew was just as foreboding. The engineer was a skinny rascal with a large mustache and pointed sharp features, like a weasel. I know why Weasel was the engineer. He was the only one small enough to squeeze down inside the hull where the old diesel engine labored. I began to worry a little when just about 15 minutes after our departure, Weasel opened the hatch and disappeared into the engine room. It was right near where I was sitting, so I peeked in to observe. Tools were strewn all over the floor. He was sitting there, banging away at something with a huge wrench. Clang, clang, clang. After a while, I couldn't bear it any longer and turned away. My son Shala would have had a conniption. Many times during the trip I heard clanging come from the hold. Whenever that happened, I knew the weasel was at it again. One of the crew members kept his head down most of the time. When he finally rolled his eyes up and looked at me without raising his head, 
I felt like I was looking into the face of a junkyard dog. His eyes seemed to say, don't even think about talking to me. My eyes said in return, you got that, buddy. There's no chance in you know where that you and I will be passing the time of day. Then he smiled at me with his disarming, kidibus smile, and all animosity was gone. It's amazing what a smile can do. I figured we'd never be bosom buddies, but I did see a spark of humanity there. Nevertheless, I tried to avoid Junkyard Dog as much as possible. There were a couple of crew members that could have fit right in as bouncers in some seedy nightclub. They looked the part, tattoos and all. Another member of the crew was a jolly fat boy. Actually, he was a man, but he just looked like a fat boy to me. He was a talker with a booming voice that seemed to work particularly well in the middle of the night. There was also a crusty old man with one eye. I'm not really sure if old one eye was a member of the crew or one of its victims. Looking at the captain and crew, I kept wondering when the skull and crossbones flag was going to be hoisted. This boat was not made for passengers. It was a fishing boat. But on this particular trip, it was acting as a combination cruise liner and cargo ship. I was one of the last persons to board. And when I got on, it looked like there was no place to stand, much less sit. Now, when I say sit, I don't mean to infer that there were deck chairs, or any manner of chairs for that matter. We just had to sit on whatever was available. A raised part of the bulkhead, or steps, or a five-gallon bucket, or just on the deck itself. Anyway, I headed toward the back of the boat, and actually felt very lucky to find a great seat sort of semi-private, right next to the hatch to the engine compartment. I thought, no problem. I can handle a few engine fumes. Even at that, in my humble opinion, this was the best seat on the boat. I sat down, made myself comfortable, and looked around to check out my surroundings. As I looked out over the back of the boat, I could see on my right side the rudder attached to the hull closest to me. Directly in front of me, between the two hulls, but closer to the one with the rudder, there was a small platform about three feet by three feet. It was about a foot and a half lower than the deck and hung out over the back of the boat. There was a handrail that went around the platform, and it seemed fairly obvious to me that it had something to do with the fishing function of the boat. I stood up and looked over the back of the boat to see what the bottom of the platform looked like. There was a round hole in the middle of the platform about the size of a volleyball. I figured that a fisherman would probably just stand on the platform and fish through the hole, like with ice fishing. I figured wrong. About a half hour after we left port, I looked over my shoulder and saw a little girl holding a roll of toilet paper and staring at me. I stared back, as if to say, what? She looked at me, looked at the platform, and then looked back at me. And then it dawned on me. So that's the way it is on this boat. I should have known. Ice fishing my foot. I got the message, stood up, and casually strolled past the girl over to the other side of the boat and observed the horizon. 
I found that I would be observing the horizon quite a bit during the next couple of days. When the little girl left, I reclaimed my seat, somewhat embarrassed. Pretty soon, one of the crew members walked past me to the railing immediately to my right, about four feet away, and observed the horizon on my side of the boat, while he took a whiz. Okay, I thought, now you're adding insult to injury. So much for the best seat on the boat. About an hour out of port, the sun set, and in another half hour, it was dark. Everyone on the boat seemed to find a place to lie down, except me. I sat in my place for as long as I could, until my back got so tired I became desperate. I rummaged around a bit and was finally able to find an old piece of cardboard, which I laid across the top of three oil drums. That became my bed. I can't tell you how good it felt to lay down, even on those old drums. At about 11 o'clock, one of the bouncers woke me up and bid me to follow him. He simply said, bed, and pointed to the cabin. I thought to myself, well, it couldn't be any worse than this. I need to be careful not to think too much. The inside of the cabin smelled like a lot of things, but inviting was not one of them. Besides the navigation equipment that was crammed in the cabin, there was stuff laying everywhere food wrappers, bundles of clothes, partially eaten dried fish, a moldy piece of bread, some spilled rice, and other old things that I didn't want to know about. As I looked around, I noticed three wood shelves on either side of the cabin, each about two feet wide and six feet long. There were people stuffed in these shelves. The bouncer pointed to the empty top shelf on the side closest to us and said, There! I thought, great, how am I going to get into that? I tried in vain to climb up the front. Naturally, there was no ladder. He said, side. As I rolled my eyes, I thought to myself, of course, why didn't I think of that? I finally struggled my way up and into the bunk. It was hard as a board. Actually, it felt harder than a board, more like a piece of steel. No mattress, no sheet, no blanket. Nothing, just a hard, hard piece of wood. But I was grateful, because I could stretch all the way out. I wasn't able to do that on the oil drums because the cardboard I had found was too small. I lay there staring at the ceiling, which was about a foot from my nose, when Bouncer said one last thing, Pillow? Yes, yes, of course, yes. I didn't care that it smelled like diesel oil. I didn't care that it was filthy. I didn't even care if it was infested with little bugs. I only cared that it was soft. I immediately went to sleep and didn't waken until about 2 o'clock in the morning, which is the time I usually wake up to make my ritual trip to the bathroom. Now... You need to catch a vision of this, if you haven't already. I'm on the top bunk. There's no ladder. Straight below me on bunk number two is the captain. And below him on bunk number one was another body. I think it was Junkyard Dog. I definitely did not want to wake either of those guys. 
So with all the prudence of a brave but wise man, I decided to wait it out. I went back to sleep and woke again at three o'clock in the morning. The urge was stronger now. I looked out over the edge of the bunk. They were both still there, and the captain's leg was now sticking out of his bunk, right where I felt like I needed to climb down. Better go back to sleep, I thought. A half hour later when I awoke, it was still status quo. At 4.30 a.m., they had a change of watch, and Fat Boy took over the helm. His booming voice should have wakened everyone on the boat, but it was just me that was so startled I nearly bumped my head on the ceiling. I was finally able to doze off again, but at 5 o'clock, nature was calling so loud that I had no choice. I had to make my move and just let the consequences follow. I think it must have been a miracle of sorts, because somehow I was able to get from the top bunk all the way to the floor without stepping on or waking either the captain or junkyard dog. I made my way out of the cabin and to the back of the boat, stepping quietly over sleeping bodies lying on the deck. I must say, one has to be pretty light-footed to tiptoe around sleeping bodies while the boat is bobbing and swaying every which way. I made it, though, finally arriving at the little area where the day before I had seen the crew member observe the horizon while he did his business. Afterwards, I sat in my private place and watched the sun come up behind us in the east. It was a beautiful, peaceful morning on the ocean, and I offered up a prayer of thanksgiving to my Father in heaven for so many blessings, for my loved ones, for my mission, for life itself, and yes, even for the experience on this raunchy fishing boat, all of which had made me appreciate all the more the blessings that have been so richly bestowed upon me. As the morning stretched into midday, time like the boat seemed to move in slow motion. The day became long, hot, and tedious. I only saw Simi twice. He slept in the cabin most of the day. The two times I saw him, he was leaning over the rail, retching. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I sort of felt smug that this native, who was raised on the islands and who was very familiar with the ocean, was sick, and I wasn't. Simi asked me if I had any medicine. When I told him I did, but that it was in my suitcase in the hold, he wasted no time in getting one of the bouncers to fetch it. After taking a couple of pills, Simi went back to the cabin and slept like a baby the rest of the day. About three o'clock in the afternoon, old One-Eye sat down next to me and started talking. I couldn't understand a word he was saying. So in my limited kitabus, I asked him to say it again, slower. He was actually asking me if I spoke kitabus. I told him that I spoke only a little. As it turns out, my kitabus was better than his English, which isn't saying much. 
Nevertheless, we communicated. He asked me how old I was. I said, Onobi Ma Onua, which is 66. He said he was Nimabui Ma Ruioa, which is 59. We talked of children, grandchildren, flying fish, we saw lots of them, and other things that I knew the words for. It was a good experience. Old One Eye gave me a little hope that I may yet learn how to communicate in Kitabis. The only thing I had eaten in the entire day was a little beef jerky that I had brought with me, along with a liter of rainwater. When night came again, I was faced with the decision of where to sleep. I was again offered one of the bunks in the cabin, but graciously declined. One night of that was enough. I finally found a little area on the deck and curled up for the night. My poor body ached all over. I had a fitful sleep and woke up several times. At four o'clock in the morning, I realized that the sea was somewhat calmer. As I looked up, I could see land. We had arrived at the lagoon of Fanning Island. It was just before sunrise on Tuesday morning. One of the greatest and most inspirational experiences of my lifetime happened on Fanning Island. In the next chapter, chapter 24, Fanning Island, part two, I will share that experience. <laughs>